Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Ellie Gotts. We will be discussing his newly published memoir, Flights of Spirit, published in Toronto by the Azraeli Foundation of Holocaust Survivor Memoirs Program, 2018. Ellie has a Bachelor of Science in Engineering. He is an engineer, a businessman, a pilot, an author, and a public speaker. Ellie, it is a sincere blessing to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you. To begin, can you tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the person you would become as an adult? I grew up in Lithuania in a Jewish family in Kaunas, the capital of Lithuania at the time. And I had a normal life until the age of 13. I was the only grandson of two pairs of grandparents, the only nephew of four uncles and an aunt. So I was indulged. I wasn't spoiled, but I was indulged every... uh, Every birthday, I used to get nice presents. I always asked for building sets. I didn't want toys that you wind up and they walk. I wanted a building set so I can build something myself. And uh, I loved school. I enjoyed very much going to school. I loved mathematics, physics, science, and history. I was very interested in history. I was an early reader. I learned at a young age to read. And after that, the world was my oyster. I could read about anything I wanted. So I read a lot. And history was one of the subjects that interested me. What aspects of your writing process were most challenging for you? Of the writing process? Yes. The problem that I had when writing the book at a mature age, quite late in life, I'm now 95, and I wrote the book when I was about 92, and I started to write for grade 10 students. That was my my audience that I addressed, because I speak to them so many times. And... I started to write and I showed my wife, Esme, my wonderful wife with whom I've been, now been married for 65 years and we are still in love. And she looked at the writing and she said, it's no good. You write like an engineer. I said, what do you mean? I am an engineer. <laughs> she said, what, how do these engineers write? She said, how do engineers write? She said, no feelings, just facts. You are not putting in how you felt when this was going on. Okay, so I took it back and I tore it up and I started again and I tried to put in a bit of feelings, not too much, but a little. (laughs) What inspired you to prepare this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? I wanted to leave something when I'm gone to grade 10 students mainly and to others, but... My my level of writing was addressed to the grade 10 because that is a very sensitive age in recognizing oneself as a member of society. And I wanted the students to understand what happened to me and how to live, how to achieve their own aims. I was hoping that my book would give them the assurance that they also can achieve something. What can this memoir teach other refugees fleeing from catastrophes in other parts of the world? Tenacity. The tenacity to achieve one's dreams. That is what one must have when one is a refugee, when one runs away from the country of birth, when one is driven out by forces that you have have no control. You must have hope. And you must have tenacity, tenacity to go and achieve what you want, even when the circumstances are not valid for you. Can you summarize your book for us? The book is the tale of a young boy of 13 who finds himself at the age of 
13 in a ghetto, separated from society, no schooling. I never went to high school. <clears throat> and the danger of death, a daily thought and a nightmare. That is the story of the early part of my book, the main part, actually, where we sat in a ghetto and people were being killed on a regular basis. 30,000 Jews started and 20,000 Jews remained after October 31st, 1941, because 10,000 were killed up on the Ninth Fort. Living through some of these events is, a, is, is quite a difficult thing to absorb and even to explain. But uh, what touched me most uh, in this three years in the ghetto was at the end, when we were sitting in a basement and were ready to commit suicide if the Germans find us. And that when my mother was going to inject us and kill us, give us a heart attack from the medicine that she was going to inject. My mother was a nurse in the hospital assisting in operations. And she was tasked with the job of committing suicide if they find us. That was a very moving experience for me, never forgotten. What does the title of your book mean? Why did you choose this specific title? I didn't choose it. It was suggested by one of my editors. Oh, really? And I thought it was a very good one. Spirit, okay. flights of spirit, because I was a pilot. I love. I was a passionate pilot. I loved flying flying aeroplanes, my own aeroplane, flying gliders, um, even jumping from an aeroplane at the yeah. age of 89. <laughs> flying was one of my joys. Building model aeroplanes as a kid at the age of 13, I was very accomplished builder of models. And I dreamt, I want to be an engineer of aeroplanes and I want to fly an aeroplane myself. I didn't become an engineer of airplanes. I became an electronics engineer, but flying, I achieved my objectives, my aims. Can you describe the image on the front cover of the book? What does it depict? <laughs> that was very cute. The designer took a picture of me on a bicycle as a kid, which I gave him, and he put it flying over the city of Kaunas, combining the bicycle and the flying and calling it the flying spirit. Hmm. Wow. I thought it was very cute. <laughs> oh, it certainly is. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. What was high school like for you? What were your strongest and weakest subjects? Do you remember your favorite and least favorite teachers? Oh, yes, sure. Um, I'll tell you, I was a very good student. I was number two in class of a class of 30. And my favorite was mathematics and physics and science and geography. But I very much enjoyed history and literature as well. So I was reading a lot and I was studying a lot in mathematics. I was very good at maths. I was number one in mathematics in the class. And everybody knew that. Anybody couldn't do a problem, they asked me how to solve it. I got it partly from my father. He wanted to be an engineer when he was a young man, and he applied in Russia. He lived in Lithuania, which was occupied by the Russians before the First World War for 150 years. So he went, after high school, he went to St. Petersburg to study electrical engineering, and he got two years of engineering but he couldn't finish because of the revolution. So he came back to Kaunas and he had to be a bookkeeper in the bank. And my father loved mathematics and he gave me that love. He used to show me how to solve problems and uh, I got it, I, I loved it. To convert word questions into a mathematical formula and solve, that was a skill which I got very early. When you were younger, in high school, did you make friends easily or were you more solitary? I had to make friends easily. I was an only child. I had nobody at home to play with. I had to be friends with people. <laughs> I had to make friends so that I should have company. I was easygoing. And I was sometimes the comedian in the classroom. 
I like to tell funny stories or jokes or, and I always had a nickname, one nickname or another. They used to call me Pokemiao the philosopher. I don't know where Pokemiao yeah. came from, but that's what it was. I used to meow like a cat and I was always giving more complicated answers to simple questions. <laughs> how, how did that nickname make you feel? I was used to it. Everybody gave me a nickname. In the ghetto, when I was teaching uh, metalwork to the students, because I graduated from two years of metalwork, toolmaking skills, and I was a very good student, that they offered me to teach. And one day I watched the teacher using a chisel and a hammer, and he did it so skillfully, he hit the chisel without looking at the top where the hammer came down. He looked at the bottom of the chisel. And I said to my fellow students, <laughs> I said, it sounds to me like piff, puff, pui, bom, chick, chuck, the echo of the metal. I said it once, and immediately my name became piff, puff, pui, bom, chick, chuck for the whole time of the year that I was a teacher, a year and a half. <laughs> and it was... <laughs> It stuck to me. Can you tell us about your mother and father? Where were they born? Where did they get married? How did they meet? My father was born in a smaller town in Lithuania, in Shavl or Shauliai. And uh, my mother was born in Kovno, Kaunas, where I was born. And uh, my father always wanted to be an engineer and studied and was always good in maths. My father, my mother was more a reader. She loved literature and poetry and a singer. She had a lovely voice and she used to sing very well and she loved music. And a cultured woman, she finished high school in Russian and then she learned uh, she became a nurse and uh, worked uh, for many years in a nurse and assisting in operations and as a children's nurse. And they met together after the end of the First World War, in 1928, actually, because uh, my, uh, my father worked as a volunteer in a children's home, an orphanage, and my mother worked uh, as a nurse. And that is where they met. <laughs> How were their personalities and parenting styles similar and different from one another? They were very good parents, both of them. I was never hit, and I was reprimanded just with a few words. I was a good child, but I could sometimes go off and do something that I wasn't supposed to. And my mother just had to ask me what happened and I had to tell her, and she looked at me, and that was enough. <laughs> I was very gently raised. What befell your parents during the Holocaust? They were in the ghetto together with me, of course, and my mother's, my mother's three brothers, and my, uh, and uh, her her mother. Um, my mother's mother, my grandmother, was still in the ghetto with us. And uh, we suffered through, we suffered. My father went to work and uh, he had to try and bring back some food from the work. And it was very dangerous because the Germans at the gate used to search you and take you away and beat you up. But my father worked hard and he brought potatoes and whatever he could buy. Um, he worked hard, my father, all his life. But the main feature of my father to me was his love of books. He loved books. Wow. Every week he used to bring a new book home. He had a big library. And we moved into the ghetto. My father brought his whole library, all the books in packed in cartons into the ghetto. We got a very small room to live in. So the cartons were lying on the side of the wall. We couldn't open them. And then came the order, give up all your books. Jews don't need books. And I write about it very carefully, the story. And my father was very upset because he had to give up books. He loved them. So he 
went into his books and he pulled out a couple less valuable books, put them in a wheelbarrow, and he went with he and I went to the wheelbarrow to deliver the books to the collection center, which was in an old synagogue. They ripped out the benches from the synagogue and they told everybody, throw the books on the floor. We arrived there, an amazing sight greeted us. There were the books, a mountain of books in the synagogue from the floor to halfway up the wall. And my father looked around and he said, look, nobody's watching us, no soldiers. So you can have a look. He bends down, he picks up a book, another book. And then he picks up a beautiful volume and there were five more lying on the floor. He says, look at this, Pushkin, the greatest Russian poet, Pushkin. He says, the gold edition, I always wanted to buy it and I couldn't buy it. I couldn't afford it. And now it's on the floor. You know what Ellie said, take out our books and leave them here. They are not so valuable. I'm going to take Pushkin and we'll take it home. And then he went and he looked for other books. And he picked up the best books he could find. And I shouted, stop. <laughs> Dad, I'm full. The wheelbarrow, I can't take any more. Okay, cover it with a newspaper. We are going home. <laughs> and we went home with a full wheelbarrow with the best books. And we went back seven times. We went back empty and we came back full. An amazing event. We picked a whole second library in four languages. Yiddish, Lithuanian. Russian and German, and my mother was shouting, what are you doing? You are going, they are going to kill us. And my father said, don't worry, we are not keeping them in the house, we have to hide them. And he sent me up to go with all the books, carry them up on the ceiling, above the ceiling in the shed outside. And that is where all our books went up, and I made bookshelves of bricks with boards, and I had the Library of Europe in front of me. And I knew four languages, but I didn't know the literature of Russian and German. I knew the literature of, of Yiddish. So <laughs> am I taking too long for that? No, it's okay. I appreciate it. No, not at all. So I sorted out the books and I started to read. Yiddish and Lithuanian literature I knew very well already when I was 13. I was a big reader. But German and Russian literature I didn't know. I spoke Russian because my parents used to speak Russian when they didn't want me to understand. How long does it take you to learn Russian when the parents talk like that? <laughs> no time at all. So I started to read Russian, the Russian literature. I still remember poetry now from Pushkin. I read Tolstoy, Anna Karenina, War and Peace. I read Dostoevsky. Too much for a 13-year-old, but I did. And I read the German literature, Goethe, Schiller, Heine. That was my education. I, I didn't go to high school. I never went to high school. What was the Jagger report? Can you describe its context, and can you tell yeah. us about it in context? The Jaeger report is the report of the SS Abteilung, um, an SS group that, uh, and I have it in fact here. Mm -hmm. To to I can show it to you, but they can't hear me. Wow! And this is the Jaeger report describing the killing of the Jews of Lithuania between July and December 1941. The war started on the 22nd of June, and on July 1st, they were already killing Jews all over Lithuania. 93, 92 executions, altogether 137,000 Jews or something. I can't remember the total number now. And in 92 executions, all over Lithuania, and every page has lines, and each line is a date, a place, a, a town in Lithuania or a village or whatever, and how many Jewish men, women, and children were killed. And I show my students when I speak now this document to confirm that Holocaust deniers should not deny what happened. What does your memoir teach us about life in Dachau? Dachau was simply, a, it was a torture chamber called an... an called a, uh, I'm sorry, an, 
it was it was a place of total hunger, a place of no washing. Ten months I spent in Dachau at camp number one, which was a side camp, not the main camp of Dachau. And we were full of lice that were drinking our blood because we had no washing facilities for 10 months. And they brought us disease and hunger, total hunger. We used to get a bowl of soup, vegetable soup, watery soup. If a, if a potato floated in the soup, it was a good day. And one slice of bread, working 12-hour shifts on construction, hard work, and getting just that. In the morning, we used to get a black water, which was called coffee without sugar. And hunger is a very painful experience. Prolonged hunger is a total torture. You think of it day and night. I used to dream about my mother's Napoleon cake she used to make for me for my birthday. Every night I dreamt about that Napoleon cake. Wow. My wife makes it now. You walk to work in rows of five. You march and you look on the ground. Is there something to eat? And I saw a core of an apple. So I jumped out of the line to try and get it. And a soldier, an assessment, walks from behind and hits me in the back with the bolt of his rifle, nearly broke my back. That is Dachau. And you tell us about the Lithuanian nationalist movement known as the White Armbanders or the Lithuanian Activist Front. What does your memoir report about them? Yeah, as soon as the Germans marched in, immediately the Lithuanians who came with them, the Nazi Lithuanians, they formed a provisional government. The provisional government and immediately people put on white armbands and they said, we are the National Guard, we are the police, and they went out hunting for Jews. The, the provisional government immediately passed new laws. They thought they would be independent from the Germans. They only lasted six weeks. But the first law they passed was the Jews are not citizens of Lithuania. We have lived in Lithuania for 800 years. We were not citizens. And then they wrote, we are going to lock them up. And they didn't say it quite clearly, but they meant we are going to kill them all, every one of them. They only lasted six weeks. They killed 6,000 Jews, grabbed in the street, took them to the seventh fort and murdered them. And there were a couple of pogroms in addition in the streets. They killed people in the streets in front of onlookers. Then the Germans closed up the government and took over. And that's when the Jaeger report comes, when they started to kill the Jews over Lithuania, but controlled, not a wild chase like the Lithuanians did. Who was Otto Forschner? Can you tell us about him and contextualize him for, for us? Forschner was one of the Lager Älteste, the elder of the Lager, or not Älteste, he, he was a Lager Führer, the the guy who counted us every morning, had to get the right numbers, and was in charge of the camp. He was, there was a lot of, there was a camp commandant whom we used to see only occasionally, and the Lagerführer, he was in charge of the whole camp. And this guy was a vicious potty mouse. He used to call us an ugly name, an ugly word. He called us basically assholes in German. It sounds even worse than in German. And he could kill a man with an iron rod without compunction. He was a vicious man. And when he saw that the, he came, he wasn't there all the time. He was there towards the end. And uh, he knew that they lost the war. So he used to tell us every day, you assholes you think you will survive the war forget it we are keeping the last bullet for you no matter how the war ends i'm very pleased to report he was hanged after the war by the american court how did you meet your wife esme <laughs> it was a blind date wow when i turned around 30 29 people felt sorry for me that i wasn't married 
it wasn't justified. I was having a wonderful time in Africa. I was fishing uh, and and shooting crocodiles, killing crocodiles and selling the skin. I had four businesses running. I was having a ball. I was jumping horses. I was, I was living. But I thought I have to find a woman that I could love all my life. So I went looking and people felt that I should get some help. So she used to give me telephone numbers for girls to call. And I, my pockets uh, had a number of these and one of them was Esme. <laughs> when I met her, I decided that's it. <laughs> we got married very quickly. What does your memoir reveal about the activities of the Red Cross during the Holocaust? What role did the Red Cross play in Dachau? That's a very interesting question. You know, the Red Cross was did a wonderful job for for um, prisoners of war. They passed on mail from home and they brought them parcels from home and they brought them food and uh, they did wonderful job for that. But for Jews, nothing or very little. I'll tell you what happened to us. One day we saw in our camp, outside the camp, a Red Cross car with a big Red Cross on it. And they came out and they were talking with the SS about something. They didn't go into the camp because the SS told them there is a sickness around, there, there is flag fever, spotted typhus, don't go in the camp. And they believed them, though they stayed outside. And then the next day, the Germans gave us a little card from the Red Cross and told us to sign. And we signed that we received a parcel. And I said, should we sign? We haven't seen the parcel. And everybody said, you want to be killed? Sign. So we all signed. We handed in the cards. And the day after, they came in with a box, a little carton, which was half empty. The chocolate was taken out and the other stuff, I don't know what. All we got was a packet of cigarettes and a can of a condensed milk and one tin of sardines and half a pound of sugar. But the chocolate and the nice stuff, something else was gone. We don't know what was gone. They took it all. They took it for themselves, the SS. So I felt that the SS, that the Red Cross totally misused their time. They didn't do anything for the Jews. And there is a reason for it, because the president of the Red Cross was a well-known anti-Semite for many years. He didn't care about the Jews and he didn't let them do much. So I have never given money to the Red Cross since then, since the war. I, they are not connected, they are a good organization, but to me, they evoke disregard for Jews. I didn't give them any money. <laughs> Who was Dr. Benjamin Zakharin? Can you tell us about him? Yeah, Benjamin Zakharin was a well-known surgeon in Lithuania, in Kaunas. And he was the head of the hospital in the ghetto. And he was a friend because my mother worked for him assisting in operations. He was a very strong man. He was a very cultured man. And he was not only a doctor and a surgeon, he had his own hospital before the war in Lithuania. He was also a musician. He was a conductor of music. He had finished the academy. And in the ghetto, he one day conducted a concert of Tchaikovsky. Uh, he was also in, he was very friendly with my uncles, with my mother, with my father. And uh, when we went from Kaunas in the train, when we went to the concentration camps, my mother asked him, in case we get separated from the women, that he should look after me. And he did. He saved my life. I was very sick in the hospital barrack, and he was in charge there. And when I came out after three days of unconsciousness, I barely survived. I weighed 70 pounds. And he said, stay here. 
you don't have to go back to work. You can't go back to work. And that saved my life. I was working in the hospital. I was assisting in everything. And one day the commandant came in and he said, a new commandant, and he said to Zaharin, show me around. So Zaharin took him around the, the, the hospital house. It wasn't a hospital. It was just a barrack, a big barrack. And uh, the commandant said, have you got, where's the operating room? And Zaharin said, we haven't got one. He said, what do you mean? It's a hospital you've got to have. And Zaharin said, we haven't got the instruments. We have nothing. Get, make me a list, he said, and I will get it for you. And two crates arrived two weeks later with all the instruments. So Zaharin said to me, Eli, build a hospital, build, build a surgery. Take this room, clean it out, and build a bed so we can put a person down for a surgery. And to me, he also said, this guy's crazy, but he's a medical student. He thinks there should be a, how can we operate on these people? They weigh 70 pounds, they are, they are skeletons. Anyway, I built this place and I laid out the instruments and I made everything. And Zaharin said to me, Eli, you are going to be my assistant in the operations, if we have any operations. I said, doctor, I don't know anything about it. I'm a mechanic. I'm a locksmith. Why don't you take a doctor? He said, that doctor, he is an internist. They know nothing. You'll know. Your mother knew and you will know. <laughs> he was depending on my DNA from my mother that I know how two operations should work. Anyway, I assisted him in operations. Two operations took place, appendix attack, and the man survived and lived. And the commandant used to stand every time at the operation at the head and watch what is going on. And Dr. Zaharin gave him a lecture. After the war, we were liberated. Dr. Zaharin went back to Russia, to Lithuania. At first, they put him as a surgeon again, and then some people complained about him, that is, they sent, he sent them away from the camp to another camp. There were some complaints against him. They put him in jail, and he died in jail. A sad, sad ending to a very fine man. Can you tell us about life in Norway? What was it like living in Norway? Norway are, are was your wonderful. Yeah. You see, we stayed in Germany for two years. We waited to go somewhere. We wanted to get out, 1945 to 1947. After I came out from hospital after six months, and I, I'll i tell you something later. Anyway, we stayed and we couldn't go anywhere. Israel was closed, Palestine. We couldn't go to Palestine because the British had it. America was closed. South Africa, we had relatives we couldn't go. So we didn't go anywhere. And we stayed in Germany and we hated it. And one day when I applied, to, uh, long story there, but um, I came home and I told my mother, I want to go to university. She said, you're not going to university in Germany because we are leaving. Where are we going? She said, we are going to Norway, the only country that offered to take 500 Jews. We went to Norway. And they were wonderful to us, our whole family, my three uncles, my aunt, my parents, my mother. We went to Norway. They gave us housing. They gave us bedsheets. They gave us toothbrushes. They, they were wonderful to us. And they taught us Norwegian. I learned Norwegian in three months because I was very anxious to get a job and to be able to study engineering. I learned mm. it in three months. I worked very hard. I learned thing, Norwegian by reading the newspaper with a dictionary. I didn't want to go to class because adults are very slow learners. I didn't like it. So I learned on my own. And every time a Norwegian person walked by, I used to ask them, please talk to me for five minutes. I have to learn your language. After three months, I spoke Norwegian. I got a job in a radio shop. I was good. We had a wonderful time that we stayed a year in Norway. What was life like in Rhodesia? Can you tell us about social and cultural life in Bulawayo? What are your memories of Bulawayo? 
Bulawaya was a wonderful Jewish little community, not too big, but everything. We had lectures, my uncle that I found, uh, an uncle, my brother of my father, he was a Yiddish speaker and used to lecture in Yiddish. And uh, I soon became part of the community. I, I, was, uh, I went to school. I had to learn English when I arrived in Rhodesia. I didn't know a word of English. I just finished learning Norwegian. Now I needed English. So I got into grade 12 for nine months. After nine months, I passed very well the exam. And I went to university in Johannesburg. But Rhodesia had a nice Jewish community, a Jewish club, synagogues, everything. And most, most of the people were from Lithuania. Some of them we knew from before the war. So we felt very warm there. It was a nice community, very friendly, helping each other, working. What were relations like between Jews and non-Jews in Bulawayo? What were relations like between whites and blacks in Bulawayo? That's two separate questions. The mm. friendship between the Jews and the whites was okay. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a little anti-Semitism occasionally, but generally speaking, it was fine. But the relationship with the blacks was a totally different one. Mm -hmm. You couldn't be friends with a black person. It was not acceptable. Mm -hmm. I I tried. I had some problems with it because I hated how they were treating the blacks there. I was embarrassed. Yeah. I knew I wouldn't stay in Rhodesia or in South Africa later too long because I can't stand the way they were handling it. So uh, I became very friendly with uh, some black people. I, I used to work while I went to university. Every summer I came back to Rhodesia and I used to work in a radio workshop where there were some black people working. Their job was not repairing radios. Their job was to carry the radios in and out to the truck and something like that. And I became friendly with one of them. And one day a white worker overheard me talking to the black one and about some polit political issues. There was an election coming and I asked him what he thought. And he reported me, the white man, the mechanic, immediately reported me to the director and asked him to fire me because I talked to the blacks. The director was a Jew and he didn't fire me, but he called me in and he told me, Ellie, you better stop it. Don't talk because I'll have to fire you otherwise. So it was a tough situation. Nevertheless, the blacks in Rhodesia were not treated as badly as the blacks in South Africa, the black people in South Africa. That was a different story. Later, I lived in South Africa, and that was totally unacceptable. Can you describe your experiences with the From Anguish to Hope trip and the March of the Living trip? What are your memories of these trips? Can you describe them for us? That was, I've been about five times to Auschwitz with the students, I, I chose the older group from uh, Resilience and Hope, uh, the March of uh, Remembrance and Hope. I wanted students and not only Jews, but uh, every, every religion. We took students from across Canada. And I was very touched by the whole experience. To stand with the students in Majdanek, inside a gas chamber and realizing that 750 people died here in 20 minutes. It's a very touching experience to every student and to me. So we, they constantly questioned me, how did I survive? What happened in Auschwitz and Dachau? Uh, my experience, uh, it was an, I was an important member of the group because I was constantly telling them my history, and interpreting what they were seeing. It's a very moving experience to travel with them. And you tell us about your work with the Sarah and Chaim Neuberger Holocaust Education Center in Toronto? Yeah, this is now called the Holocaust Museum of Toronto, the Holocaust Center of Toronto. And uh, 
I have been there from the beginning. In the 1980s, I arrived in Canada in 1964. In 1980s, we had in Canada a German guy called Zundel. And Zundel wrote a book, Did Six Million Really Die? Mm -hmm. And when we heard it, we were so shocked. We used to have meetings of survivors. There were a lot of survivors here in Toronto, uh, many. And we used to have meetings and we heard that. We said, guys, we've got to go out and speak to schools. We can't let that man get away with it. He was eventually sent out of Canada and arrested in Germany and he was gone. But we started to go to schools. And I was amongst the first to go out and speak to schools, talk to them, tell them what happened in the Holocaust so that deniers should not get a chance to get the kids. So we worked very hard and then we built a center where we had a little theater and uh, we started to speak. Many of us started to speak. In fact, I was very active in, in the second level of building. The first time uh, we did all kinds of things. Uh, we, we made the picture gallery and I designed a special way of doing the pictures because the wall was too small. So we wanted to have pictures and storyboards next to each other. I designed a way in which the storyboards were behind the pictures and the pictures were sliding so that you could display the storyboards. And people loved that the display, which is still on now. But now we've built a new Holocaust Center, a new museum, and that is very effective, a new one. Just started. In fact, I'm going to the opening uh, next week, I think. So I was very active. I helped train some of our survivors how to speak because I was a more experienced speaker. So I helped to train them how to tell their story so it should be effective, not to get stuck on little details, but to rather tell the broad story. You have a chapter in the book called Free of Hate, and in it you write the following words. Many years later in Canada, my daughter Julia told me a saying, to hate is like taking poison and hoping the other will die. Many people attribute this quote to Buddha, though it is also attributed to a variety of sources. Regardless, I feel it. I tasted that poison at age 17, but I spit it out and never tasted it again. Now, whenever I'm speaking to students, I quote this saying. Can you elaborate on these words? My object of speaking to students is one of the main reasons is to teach them not to hate other people. Hate is a terrible thing. As you just read, to hate is like taking poison and hoping that the other would die. 2,700 years ago, Buddha said it apparently. It's still true today, and I have experienced it. Because when I came out from hospital after six months in hospital, I was full of hate of Germans and Lithuanians who killed us, and I walked around looking for a gun. I wanted to kill Germans. That was my plan. I was looking for poison or a gun. I couldn't get either. I looked but I was full of hate. And one day, you know, nobody asked us, how do you feel? The UNRWA, the United Nations, they gave us food, they gave us a place to live, they gave us secondhand clothes from America, but nobody asked us, how do you feel? And I was full of hate. And one day I said to myself, what are you thinking? And I pushed my head sideways. I said, you are crazy, you are dumb. How can you think of killing people? You want to kill that woman there? And I looked at her and I thought to myself, no, I don't want to kill her. She has done nothing to me. Well, whom do you want to kill? That man? Yeah, he could have been a guard in Dachau. You don't know, I said to myself. Perhaps he was a professor of history who hated Hitler. You can't accuse a whole nation of being murderers because they are not. I forced my head sideways not to think about it. I gave up hate actively and constantly because I had to remind myself. And when I stopped hating, 
I started living for the first time. And I remembered, I want to be an engineer and I haven't got high school. So I hid the books. Now I talk about hate in detail. I tell the students, maybe you are now in grade 10, but in grade five, you had a guy who bullied you. Now he's in grade 10. He doesn't bully you anymore, but you still hate him because of what he did to you. I urge you, forget it. What is in the past is a past. Don't hate. You don't have to forgive him because he didn't ask you for forgiveness. And then I give a talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness is important, but the person who hates, who harmed you, should ask for forgiveness. And then you should forgive. Jewish law says a man should ask for forgiveness three times. And if the person, the sufferer, does not forgive after three times, the sin is on him. Yeah. In Christianity, we have a prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others the trespasses against us. That's a nice prayer. But we are begging God to forgive us our trespasses. But the person against whom we trespassed, he's still suffering. I say, a man has to ask for forgiveness. You know, after the war here in Canada, I traveled once to Germany and I met a guy, a German who was a Nazi. He told me I was a Nazi. It was an interesting story. I went to, to Germany to buy something from a factory and the guy met me at the airport and he said, I will be your translator. I said, I don't need you. I speak German. Where did you learn German so well? I said, in Dachau. That was just a dig. It wasn't true. I learned it before. <laughs> so I came to the party, to, to the factory there. And we had in the board meeting, a big meeting with the engineers and everybody talking German. Nobody said a word. But in the end, one man comes up to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he takes me aside and he says, Mr. Gotz, are you a Jew? I said, yes. And you were in Dachau? Yes. Come, I want to tell you something. And he takes me to a coffee shop and he tells me, I became a Nazi when I was 18 years old. So I say to him, I suppose you had to. No, he says, I didn't have to. I wanted to. And my father, who was a diplomat in the previous Weimar Republic, said to me, don't go with these people. They are bad people. And I was furious with him. I walked away. And two months, two weeks later, he said it again. And I said, Father, if you say it a third time, I will report you to the Gestapo. I was prepared to send my father to Dachau. Can you believe that? And I was surprised. I said, was he a bad father? He was a wonderful father. But when I heard that man speak, Hitler, when I heard that man speak, he says, I was prepared to do anything for him. Anything? Now I'm now my ears are up. Did you do anything? Because I thought if he's SS, I'm out of here. And he said, No, I didn't do the Schweinerei, the pig work. I was a soldier in Stalingrad. I nearly lost my life there. Stalingrad was the biggest defeat of the Germans in the war. I said, did you know? Okay, so he was a soldier. I said, did you know what people, have, what you guys, what the Nazis have done in your name? Because people say now they didn't know it was happening. Oh, yes, he says, I saw it. I saw them. They took farmers in Ukraine, peasants, stuffed them in a church, a wooden church, poured gasoline and burned them to death. I said, how come Germans say now they didn't know this happened? Because we are ashamed, he said, don't you understand? We have sinned, we have done the worst thing. We will not be forgiven for a thousand years. <laughs> a thousand years. Hitler used to say, I'm building a state for a thousand years. And now he says, we won't be forgiven for a thousand years. And then he said something that got into my head. He said, I want you to understand. I became a Nazi, not because I wanted to become a murderer, but because I was an idealist and I understood how a young man can be misguided by a bad leader and become a Nazi. Him, I could forgive. In fact, I said so. You are a good man. So there is another hate. There is a hate of people who have hurt you. 
and there is a hate of people that you don't even know. Strangers, newcomers, different color of skin, different religion, different language. And I say to the kids, don't hate, get to know them. I'm not asking you to love them. Get to know those newcomers to Canada and you will discover a common humanity. Wow. Thank you for sharing this with me and with our listeners. I could not be more grateful and could not feel more blessed. Thank you very much. Thank you for the interview. All the best. Shalom. As as we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Since the book, you mean? Yeah, since your book has been completed, what have you been spending your time focused on? I'm now focused on speaking. I speak about 100 times a year to schools and universities in Canada and in the United States. I speak like I spoke now. I speak about the Holocaust. I speak about Holocaust deniers. I speak about hate and forgiveness. I speak about what is important to learn from the Holocaust and from genocide not to do it again. I'm somewhat pessimistic about the world because it hasn't stopped the world from killing people. But I'm trying. I'm doing my best. Last year, I spoke to 26,000 people, mostly students. That is phenomenal. You are a genuine gift to humanity and gifts to the Jewish people. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) To our listeners, I am your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. I've been in dialogue today with Ellie Gotts. We have been discussing his memoir, Flights of Spirit, published in in Toronto by the Azrieli Foundation of Holocaust Survivor Memoirs Program 2018. Ellie has a Bachelor's of Science degree in engineering. He is an engineer, businessman, pilot, author, and public speaker. Again, this is Ellie Gotts. We have been discussing his book, Flights of Spirit, published in Toronto by the Azrieli Foundation Holocaust Survivor Memoirs Program 2018. Thank you.